the reading is taken from Ecclesiastes 8, and that's verses 1 to 15. Here we go. I'm just going to lean in just so I can read it. Um, who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command, because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? The man has power to retain the spirit, or power, no man, sorry, no man has power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes, takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray together. Father, we come to you today pleading that you will speak to us, that by your spirit you would move in our hearts in this moment that as we talk about issues that divide people in D.C., in Belfast, it seems like it, uh, there are some tensions that have spanned international borders at this point. And we pray that you would bring clarity. We pray that, that the words of my mouth in this time and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you and that, that your truth and your gospel would show us um, where, how we can engage in life in the time that you've entrusted to us. So we lift this time to you. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, I took the opportunity to travel and get out of D.C. this week, and, and as we've left D.C., I thought maybe this will be a chance to leave behind the political tensions and the cloud that exists over our city right now in this moment, and, and Lucas asked me to preach on this passage. So, um, and as he said, it, it is, it's at least funny that between the 4th of July, which we just celebrated in D.C., and between the 12th of July, which I've heard there's some things that go on in Belfast on that day, um, that this is the passage that we run into. And so, um, given the text this morning, it, it had to make me laugh. Um, we, did, we moved to D.C. eight years ago to start a church. And so we live right on Capitol Hill, 
We live eight blocks from the Capitol Dome, and um, you can't avoid politics in D.C. It's, it's kind of a company town that way, and everything revolves around the government, and even people that aren't connected to the government, you, it, you can't, it's in the air. You can't escape it. And so as we got to know the District of Columbia and, and got into that context and got to know the people that God had called us to, there was a learning curve for us, for me as a pastor, on engaging in political issues and how to deal with politics within the church. And it was important to us from day one, we wanted to make sure that our church would be a church that was politically diverse which we don't see a lot of in, in the American context. Usually, I mean, even in D.C., I can walk into a church and within, within three minutes be able to tell you where most of their congregation leans on the political spectrum. We wanted to do something different and to see something different develop. We wanted to see Christians engaged in the political sphere on both sides of the aisle, which it's, it is strange in the States that we really are in a two-party system. And so we wanted, to see, we wanted to be able to see the gospel infuse people's lives that had opportunities across the spectrum, and, and by God's grace, we've seen that happen. But it, it, it's also meant that we as a church have had to learn how to take on politicized issues and, and turn to Scripture as our guide to be able to see that. So we, there is some context here. These are things we've had to wrestle with. Hopefully, this will be helpful today as I, we get to step into this passage. And we are at a fascinating cultural moment. Um, in our church, we had a guy that that was the chief videographer for the White House. And so he was on the communications team for the White House, which I think has had like four or five different directors at this point. Um, and so I don't know how cued in you are to what's happening in American politics. It's, it feels like a reality show, um, and, it, and it kind of is. And so, um, but with obviously with massive implications. And, um, and so even you know, encouraging this member of our church who was in that position, he had an inside view on what's happening. And, and, and it, it's a really difficult moment. It's difficult right now because we're in a moment that it seems like division and fear and anger are ruling the day. Um, it, it shows up in our online interaction with people. It shows up in people's social media. Remember when social media was fun? It doesn't feel that way anymore. It feels like nightmares are streamed into my eyes every time I open Twitter. And, and it used to be fun. Like it, my, The biggest complaint about Facebook used to be people's videos of their cats. And now it feels like you can't even get online without having tough tension and interaction. And so today we see, we take on a tough question of how does the church, how do we as Christians navigate the world that we live in politically? How do we navigate the dynamics of power? And I love that the Bible doesn't avoid the brokenness of this world and it doesn't avoid the difficult things that we face, especially, I mean, you've been in a series in Ecclesiastes here at Village, so you know that Ecclesiastes doesn't avoid the difficulty and brokenness of this world. So the Bible's an earthy book. It gets into real life issues, and it doesn't shy away from the things that we see. And we see in today's text, first of all, we see how to live in a broken world. And so it does talk about power, but not just about power. Right in the center of the text that we just read, it says in verse 10, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. And this is also vanity. The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, and the, hearts of, the heart of children of man is fully set to do evil. So Koheleth, the teacher here in Ecclesiastes, gets right to the core of things that is, he's repeated over and over, but at the core of this, what's happening, he, he recognizes the difficulty that when we look at our world, it looks like the wicked win. It looks like evil people get ahead. 
And, and it does look that way. The people that we see in positions of power typically, and right now certainly, don't exhibit godly character, good decision-making. And so how, why is that the case? And he's lamenting here. How is it that the wicked get ahead? Why is it that they win? They, they win in the holy place. They, so they win in church. They used to go in and out of the holy places. They, they win popularity in the city. People follow them. They get away with their wickedness. The sentence is delayed. People see that they get away with it, and so they turn to it. It seems like they live better because of their sin. And we see this too. That wicked people can win in the church and in the holy place. And churches are easy targets for manipulative, awful people because too often there's little leadership, little accountability. People want to see the best in everyone and they get convinced by someone with confidence. And so we don't have to look far for church scandals, for abuse of power in churches. It, it, it's, that's just when wicked people actually get caught. It, it does look like people win, wicked people win in the city. And before we simply make this about religious people, the same happens throughout the city. Moral bankruptcy exists through every sphere. So, but the teacher here is also clear that they won't win in the end. What's difficult is that that sometimes can be a little bit hard to take a lot of solace and rest in. When he says, you know, I, a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, and it won't be well for the wicked. He's saying that they'll, they'll get theirs in the end, but, but it, when we're living in the midst of real time and place, it's hard to keep perspective on that because it looks like the wicked get ahead. And so it's in that light of saying, this is the reality we see. This is the brokenness of this world that we're, we're living in then. It's, it's in that context that he also talks about how do we deal with leaders? How do we deal with people in positions of power? As Lucas said, the title here is Keeping the King's Command. And so we, we see this, this difficult command of saying, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Don't be hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause because he does what he pleases. The word of the king is supreme, and who might say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There's a, there's a time and a way for everything. This is a repeated theme through Ecclesiastes 2. There's a season for everything. So there's some practical wisdom here on how to deal with leaders, how to enter into politics, how to deal with people in positions of power. And this is needed right now. Again, I mentioned eight years ago we moved to D.C. to start a church, the tenor of our city is entirely different now than it was when we moved there. And um, when we moved to DC, I moved from, I grew up in Chicago, that was home, and so moving to DC, in Chicago nobody cares about politics, because we all know that it's bought. If, <laughs> if you're a daily, if your last name's daily, you, you, you're gonna win the election every time. And so we know that it's a corrupt political system, everybody's like, ah, whatever. Moving to DC, it was shocking to me that when we first moved there, um, whatever pub you'd walk into, one of the TV screens, at least, was always turned to a news station. That would never happen in Chicago. Like people would throw things at the bartender. And, and so it was shocking to me to walk in and be like, why is, why, you know, it's got CNN over here and MSNBC and, and Fox over Like they had multiple channels turned to multiple news sources all the time. Now when you walk into a pub in DC, that would never happen because everyone is so tired. There is, there's a cloud over our city right now and people, because things have gotten so divisive. 
And, and within that, it's important for the church to have a voice, but a, a right voice, a, a biblically driven voice into the public square, but navigating that is, is massively difficult. It is way too prevalent that politics have infused people's identity and, and emotional life has been taken up by it and that it has, they have come to infuse our churches maybe more openly than ever. And the whole churches represent political perspectives. There was one large church in Texas that over the past few weeks was advertising that they were having a Freedom Sunday where they would sing patriotic songs and have a patriotic sermon and they were all waving American flags. This is it. We have the curtain has been pulled back. It's like in Ezekiel when, when God asked Ezekiel the prophet to to dig a hole through the walls to see what was really happening among the leaders of Israel. And all of a sudden we see the, the idolatry of our nation coming through in churches. Um, here in Belfast, you know something about churches taking on identity politics for various groups, getting caught up more in a political perspective than in proclaiming Christ as the king, and, and doing more to perpetuate divides in your city rather than bringing healing and hope through the gospel of one king. It's devastating. And at the core of this, this is the core of human sin. This isn't, this is just, and in our church we use the language, these are issues that get politicized. They aren't inherently political issue. There, there are issues that different groups and different parties will latch onto and use to further their narrative. And, and so, but it, this really is the core of what human sin is. Every one of us has a problem with someone, with the other. There's always them out there. They're the ones that are the, that are the cause of what's wrong. And I don't know what the other is for you. I don't know if it's political. It may not be. Um, you, it may be racial or cultural. It may be regional. It, may, it might be socioeconomic and that you really have a problem with people of a different socioeconomic class. For some of you that are too Christian for any of those, your, your other could come in the form even of theological minutia. That if people don't line up on this fine point of theology, then they must not even be saved. Again, what's depressing is that whole churches reflect the same. And this is the core of sin, is that we have an idolatry, ultimately of ourselves, that infuses the way that we interact with other people. There's a scholar named Miroslav Volf um, that did a study on divisions within the Czech Republic, and he made this note about the churches there. He said, slaves to their cultures, churches were foolish enough to think of themselves as the masters. And so churches became interlocked with culture spilling into partisan politics marked by the mobilization of collective hate and cultivated bigotry. This is his reflection on churches, that churches were slaves of their cultures, that they thought they were the masters, they were interlocked with culture, and that, they, that partisan divides got into the, the church so that the churches themselves were marked by mobilization of collective hate and cultivated bigotry. Along with parishioners, the clergy are often trapped within the claims of their own ethnic or cultural community and thus serve as legitimators of the conflict. We could superimpose that into D.C. We could superimpose the same quote here in Belfast. When it sounds more like a commentary on the church that I experienced. For you, it may sound like the churches that you've experienced. And again, this is when we put ourselves in the place of God and love ourselves enough that we ostracize the other outside of, and even those within this kingdom, churches can become, can become perpetuators of divides and hatred rather than people that bring healing in the gospel. 
And it's somewhat inevitable. I mean, let's face it, whether or not we'd admit it, and no matter how self-deprecating your Northern Irish humor might get, we all love ourselves. We love people that are like us. We love people that we don't have to work hard to talk to or to laugh with. That, that we, we want to be safe, and so we surround ourselves with people who affirm us in our identity and our thoughts constructs and our place in this world, and, and we all want significance, and so within those groups that bring us safety, we form these tribes that make sure that we make it clear that we're superior over the other groups, whatever that might be. And it happens in the church all the time. And politics have taken a place in public consciousness that, that they simply can't fulfill, and it's overwhelming, and it's challenging. And listen, village, and I know that this is what is shared by your elders and pastors as well, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ must not fall into partisan divides. Amen. There's one kingdom that the church of Jesus Christ proclaims. Um, there's a pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer that lived in a pretty divided time as a pastor in Germany during the rise of Nazi Germany. And he said, the church has only one altar, the altar of the Almighty, before which all creatures must kneel. Whoever seeks something other than this must keep away. He cannot join us in the house of God. The church has only one pulpit, and from that pulpit, faith in God will be preached, and no other faith and no other will than the will of God, however well-intentioned. It is wickedness for any other gospel to take the center in Christ's church. It's hard to imagine political diversity in churches, though. It's a hard dream to, to pursue. It feels like the divides are too deep. The way that we see things, the, the, our perspectives on the world, the, the ideologies we hold that inform, it's the grid through which we receive information and, re, and hear the news. And so it's, it, it can feel like a pipe dream, but, but we also need to remember that Jesus had a zealot and a tax collector on his team. That might not mean much for us now, but let me tease that out a little bit. A tax collector was, Matthew was a tax collector, and he was essentially seen by the Jewish people at the time, the people of Israel, as a defector, as a traitor, someone who had, who had linked himself up with Rome and was collecting taxes on his own people. And tax collectors were notorious for being underhanded and shady characters that would take extra and keep it for themselves. And so they were wealthy guys that were making a lot of money off of in, in occupying government. And so, he, they, and, and so that's, that was one of Jesus' disciples, was a tax collector, somebody linked up with Rome, the occupying nation. On the other hand, he had a zealot on his, in, among his 12. A zealot was somebody who was explicitly anti-Roman, who was ready to fight Rome, who was pushing for a revolution and saying, we need, to, we need to go and pursue this now and find a way to fight against this government. And Jesus was able to take those two guys, the big government guy and the anti-government guy, and say, hey, you're going to be together. They spent three years together in ministry together, and, and Jesus had them both on his team, a big government guy and a libertarian revolutionary. That's incredible. And it shows us that Christ's kingdom can transcend the political concerns that we face now. There's a sociologist named James Hunter that says that um, he has a book called To Change the World, and he talks about, uh, he deconstructs the way that Christians have engaged in politics and married themselves and wed themselves to political parties and partisan divides and shows the damage that that has done to the witness of the gospel. But in that, he says, politics are always the crudest simplification of, better, of public life. It's a simplification to spin a narrative to be able to get people's votes to stay in power. The church is called to something better. 
And so within our churches, if, if our churches can't include political diversity, then we are likely preaching and reflecting a politicized false gospel. And so in the States, we need to pursue that. In Belfast, village should, should pursue the same. To be able to preach a kingdom of God that is larger than the political divides that we have. And so what do we do as a church? Well, first, I think we need to weep over the state of things and repent where repentance is needed. Churches hijacking and contributing to divides, and then let's work to form something better. And so in a world that rewards wickedness, remember that's the context here in Ecclesiastes 8 and throughout Ecclesiastes, saying this world is broken, the wicked get ahead. This world is broken. They, they go in and out of holy places. They, they get popularity in the city. It seems like they don't ever get a sentence for their evil. They prolong their lives in, in a world that that is the reality. How do we interact with those in positions of power? So I have three-ish things to say today. <laughs> First, what we see in Ecclesiastes 8 is we, as we interact with those in positions of power, we need to recognize their God-given position. This is reflected in Romans 13 as well. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This stings a little when you don't like the people in power. To recognize that it's God-given, that he's the one that's sovereign, that he's the one that installs leaders, and it's really difficult to remember when we have democratized systems of government where you're told, we're told in the States, it's, it's like driven into us as children that your vote matters. You select the leaders. The way that you vote matters. Your voice is important. Every vote counts. And so when we get into election seasons, there'll be that push to, to get people out to vote and people rallying their bases. And it's difficult to remember when that's your context where you do have a vote into government that is different than the biblical context where kings and emperors were, were there by almost divine right. It's difficult to remember that God is actually sovereign. We like to think that we're sovereign. And then we're shocked when things don't go our way. We're able to distance ourselves from them. Like the, the amount of bumper stickers of candidates that don't win that you see in D.C. is astounding. There's a little public stand, I didn't vote for this person. <laughs> now, it's important to exercise your civic duty in voting. That's a good thing. But it's also, to remember that God is, also important to remember God is sovereign. And so when we have the chance to vote on something, to go in, to, in and vote our conscience, to be able to vote what we really do believe is right, and then as we leave the, voting, the ballot booth, to be able to, to release the responsibility and, and actually allow God to be God. Now, this, is, this passage is misused as well. It was recently, in the American context, um, our attorney general cited Romans 13 to give a reason that he was defending the separation of immigrant families and said, basically, deal with it. We're in position of power and God put us here. That's, a, that's an abuse of the text. To recognize that God is sovereign and that God is the one responsible for appointing leaders is tremendously freeing, but it's also, it also brings the leaders into their proper place. It's freeing because we're able to say, God is sovereign. The, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are not in the heavens right now, wringing their hands and calling an emergency meeting to say, we've got to figure out what to do with those politics in Belfast. He, he sees things. He's not wringing his hands saying, well, I don't, we've got to figure out what to do in the American, in the American political sphere. Things are, things are crumbling. What are we going to do? God is sovereign. 
He knows everything. He sees everything. He's in control of all things, and we can rest in that. But also remember that these leaders are not fully sovereign on their own. They are appointed by God, and they are under his uh, watchful eye and ultimately will face him in the end. So first, recognize their God-given position. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him, Ecclesiastes says. The second reality we see biblically as we interact with power is we need to recognize their authority. And this is another one that we don't like. I mean, again, my whole country was, was formed in flat-out rebellion because they didn't like that their tea was being taxed. And, and so like, there's definitely like, an individualism in the American context of saying nobody's going to be an authority over me. But here in Ecclesiastes, you can't escape it. The, the, the teacher is clear, saying, recognize their authority. Don't be foolish. Don't be hasty to go from his presence. Don't take your stand in an evil cause. Don't know the time and the way to say things as you interact with those in power. Realize that they do have a level of authority. We say that in Romans, too. We, we recognize that God has given government the sword to execute justice. And so recognize the authority that is there. Don't be foolish enough to fight for bad causes. Pick the moments that you raise your voice and realize that your voice alone isn't going to overthrow the government. Again, think about social media here. It would be a lot more fun to get on Facebook and Twitter if people stopped thinking that their post was going to change the tide of the the political world. I have never seen somebody become convinced in a Facebook comment thread that their arguments are wrong. Not once. I've never seen somebody brought to follow Jesus in the comment section of a Facebook post either. We have this concept at this point that, that posting on social media counts as being an activist. Now I've done my part, I've raised my voice, and this is my responsibility. At times, maybe it's worth taking a step back And thinking about the way that we're engaging in public sphere, thinking about what would be actually most helpful. But let's recognize that that God has given people a position and recognize their authority. Third, we need to honor leaders who are in authority. It just feels like it gets worse, doesn't it? Recognizing they're placed there by God is one thing. Recognizing that leaders do hold authority takes it a little bit further But the biblical call to honor those in authority is really hard. In Ecclesiastes, it says, keep his command. In verse 2, it says it again. And later on, in verses 5 and 6, where it says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. The wise heart will know the proper way, its proper time in the just way. There's a time and a way for everything. First Peter talks about this. Is, and, and this is where it's interesting for me biblically. We actually get a lot of perspective on dealing with those in positions of power, a lot of perspective on how to engage in the political sphere. We have it in Ecclesiastes 8 we, where we get a practical, philosophical approach. When we get to Romans 13, Paul is more of a theologian and working through a systematic approach of how this fits together theologically. First Peter 2, we have Peter coming more in a pastoral voice saying to us, to, if you're a Christian, then you are sojourners and exiles in this world. This place is not your home. You're, you're traveling through. And so using language that calls back even to Jeremiah 29 when God calls to his people in exile and says, says through the prophet Jeremiah to them, hey, you're exiles in Babylon where I sent you. And so invest yourselves in the welfare of the city. Build houses. Give your daughters and sons in marriage. Have children. Be fruitful and multiply. Plant gardens. Invest for the good of this city where you are right now. And Peter calls 
calls on that same kind of language and same kind of approach, saying, you're sojourners, you're exiles in this place, and so abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul, and keep your conduct among the nations honorable, so that they, even when they speak against you, they might see your good deeds and glorify God when he comes. But then he goes on to say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether emperor or is supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom for a, as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We need to keep these words from Peter in their proper place and proper order. I'm going to read that last section again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This is the call to every Christian as a sojourner, as an exile where he has put you. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the emperor. We're not being called to love the people in positions of authority over us in the same way that we love brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, we're supposed to love our enemies even, but there's a separate call there. We're certainly not called to be afraid or to fear those in positions of power. That's reserved for God alone. Fear him, serve God alone. But we are called to honor those in positions of power. Now, Peter was writing into a, into a culture here where Christians were actively suffering and a government was actively persecuting people simply for following Jesus. And still, he's saying, honor the emperor. He also says, honor everyone. <laughs> and so the emperor is thrown in with everyone else. He's saying, as you live as a servant of God, treat those in positions of power like you treat everyone else, with honor, with dignity, and with respect. As sojourners, we are freed to love brothers and sisters in Christ, to fear God, to honor everyone, even in those in authority. And so what does it look like? And this is an important question that we've wrestled with as a church and, and talk about regularly. What does it look like to honor those with whom you have profound disagreement? To, what does it look like to honor those in positions of authority, even when you are doing everything in your power and everything within your ability to, to in our context, to be, make sure that, that that person might not be in power the next time around? Now, again, in our church, we're, we're very politically diverse. And so our church, we have a full spectrum of people that on both sides of the aisle. We have, and so we have people that work in the administration right now. We have people that worked in the previous administration that are actively working to undercut each other's work. <laughs> but what we've, they've been able to recognize is that n none of our political parties has a corner on, on Christianity. And what we say, and I say regularly in my church, is in Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, we have him pictured returning on a horse with, a, with his king of kings and lord of lords written on his thigh. And that when he returns, he returns on a white horse as a conquering king, and he's not wearing red or blue to be a Republican or a Democrat. He's coming wearing, robed in white as the king of all kings. And so within that, if, we can, if, if you're a Christian, that becomes the perspective that you need to hold to and cling to, is that Christ is the ultimate king, and then as we engage within political spheres, we can work for his glory even within a broad spectrum of initiatives that we get involved within. What does it look like to honor someone with whom you profoundly disagree? First, acknowledge that they're in office by God's decree. We've talked about this. 
But this is a regular reminder you need, we need. They're, they hold their office by the power, and, and power by the ordinance of God himself. Second, what does it mean to honor someone in a position of power? Is to embrace the fact that they are created in God's image and likeness. When we talk about the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God, we rightly, often I think in our churches, talk about the implications that has for the voiceless, for, the peop- for oppressed people, for people that don't have what to say. We need to lift people up because there's inherent dignity. There's inherent value in all of God's people. This is when, when there are referendums passed on, on what is going to happen with, with unborn children. We say, hey, this is an Imago Dei issue. The image and likeness of God as people are being knit together in their mother's womb is important and they, the voiceless need to have a voice. When we talk about issues of, in, of racial divides and cultural divides, we say, okay, the oppressed people need to have, dig, they are, there's inherent dignity here. I think there's a tendency, at least in, in the people that, that I'm around, to not extend that to people in positions of authority. And so we can say all kinds of things and justify ourselves in our own minds through it. If we acknowledge that someone's in office by God's decree and embrace that everyone's created in God's image and likeness and that every human being has inherent dignity because of that, then it'll lead to the third, that we need to be very careful with the language we use to criticize. To engage in debate and critique, to go after ideas passionately, but be careful to recognize the image and likeness of God in everyone. And in that way, uniquely Christian opposition means that we should have a fairness and objectivity when presenting somebody else's views. And so we say in our church that for a Christian to engage in public issues and public debate and and debate in the public square, the entry point should be that we should be able to state the people we disagree with. We should be able to state their arguments as well or better than they can. Learn to invest the to learn the way that people think and invest the time to show that dignity and respect so that we can state arguments we passionately disagree with in a way that our opponents would say, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And if you were able to do that, then when we make appeals to scripture and appeals to a biblical ethic, we're able to do so in a way that people will feel heard and valued and may actually even be receptive to hear the things that you've got to say. Fifth, As we honor those in authority, it means that we will pray for them. And so how often do you, how much time do you spend praying for people that that you disagree with, people that even that you despise? Uh, Paul said to young pastor Timothy, he said, first of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So what it looks like to honor people in positions of authority, even when they're wicked, is to pray for them, to pray for the salvation of all people because God desires that all come, come to be saved. To make sure, can you imagine if the church's voice and witness in our city and in your city, can you imagine if the church of Jesus Christ was known not for contributing to divides and, and furthering bigotry, bigotry and hatred, but instead that God's people were known as prayerful people who lead peaceful and quiet lives that were godly and dignified in every way and treated people with dignity and respect as those who bear God's image and likeness? 
Can you imagine if, if the church was known more for their care and love for those who opposed them than they were known for shaking their fist? And so as Christians, we're called to be active, to be invested in our city. And yes, certainly vote your conscience, but then rest in God's sovereignty. And, don't place our, and not to place our hope in politics. And so this is what we see in, in Ecclesiastes 8. is saying the way that we approach those in positions of power matters. There's advice here that's very practical and, and recognizes the brokenness and wickedness of this place. But then we get into the last section as well, and, and there's hope here for us. There's hope in the face of what we, what, we have to be, what we have to walk through in our lives. And so we get to the verse 14. I'm sorry, in verse 12 and 13, he says, says, you know, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him, but it will not be well with those who are wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. So even the teacher here is saying, there is something that we look to in the end. Every one of us is going to stand before God in the end. Every one of us will face him in the end and answer for what we've done in our lives and how we've lived our lives, how we've treated people around us. The righteous will receive their due. The wicked will receive their due. There is retribution coming. There is justice that is coming. We don't always get to see it. Sometimes we do. Sometimes wicked people get caught. They finally lose, and we can celebrate that justice is executed. But even if we don't, we, each one of us has a sense that, that this, this place is broken. And even if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, then, then every one of us looks at the world around us and sees the brokenness that the teacher describes here in Ecclesiastes 8. Every one of us has a sense that says, this can't go on forever, Right? Justice comes eventually, right? People will get their due eventually, right? There's, there's a divide between what is and what ought to be, and, and at some point, real justice has to come. And this is why we imagine Judgment Day and, and as, and as you know, stacking good and bad against each other on the Supreme Court of the United States, which is just down the, down the street from us in our neighborhood. On the Supreme Court, it has Lady Justice who has a blindfold on with scales because we all have a sense that justice must come in the end and that our, what we have done will be weighed. Kohalath, this teacher, is confident in the same. The wicked will get what's coming to them. But here's where things get a little scary for us. And this is where I want, to, want us to land today. In all of this, we have a tendency, and even as I've been talking today, um, we have a tendency to know in our minds who the wicked are. And as I've been describing the wicked, people in positions of power that ought not to be, it's pretty easy for us to go, yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, I know the way that it ought to go here. We forget that on our own and apart from Christ, we're in that camp. In Colossians 1, it says, you who are alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, that we are enemies of God on our own, that on our own, every one of us is the wicked. And we don't know how we would respond to greater power or greater success, but the history of this entire world shows us that if we were given all of the power and all of the success and all of the wealth and all of the influence that our hearts could desire, it wouldn't go well for us either. Then this is what we, that, as the teacher says in verse 9, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun, that this wickedness comes when man has power over man to his hurt. On our own, our hearts aren't better. 
And we don't know, and, and, and as we read scripture, we need to acknowledge that God's judgment can come not only in the form of difficult things in our lives, but actually God's judgment often comes in giving us the things we desire as we turn to those things instead of to him for our hope. And so in that, our hope comes that in, in what we read here in verse 8. Verse 8, I think, might be the key to this passage. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Jesus has power over the spirit. Jesus alone has power over the day of death. There is one king that, and this is the core of real Christianity, that it's not political alignment with human kings, but full alignment with the king of all kings. That Jesus, God in the flesh, his entire ministry, in his entire ministry, his followers wanted him to take power. He had people that wanted him to overthrow Rome. Even, even right before the ascension, you get to Acts 1, and they've seen his death and resurrection. They've been with him for 40 days, and he's been teaching them and unlocking the scriptures for them. And even in that moment, they, they, they turn to him and say, okay, Jesus, is this the time? Are you going to become king now and overthrow Rome? And he says, no, I'm out of here, but I'm going to send you the spirit to work this out. And he ascends to heaven where he does take the throne, but never in the way they expected. But this Jesus does have power. He's the one that has power that no one else has, that no man can ever have power over our spirits. No man has the power to undo death except that Christ who came. And he went not taking the power that we would grasp for, but instead went, it came and lived life to go to his death. He was harmed and he was killed by those in power. But he took on death to destroy it, to destroy death itself. He was raised to life. And that's the hope that we have, that Jesus has power that no one else has, that he showed in his, in his life and ministry he has power over nature and wind and waves, that he has power over spirits and demons, power over life and death. And so we can turn to him and find rest in him and find hope in him, the perfect king that no politician can ever deliver on. He frees us then to, to joy in our lives. And this is how it ends, it's this, this refrain in Ecclesiastes that there's emptiness that takes place in this earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. It's saying good people have bad things happen to them, bad people seem to prosper and have good things happen to them. This world seems upside down, and it's emptiness, it's vanity, it's a mist. So what does he commend? Joy. Man has nothing better under the sun but to eat. And drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. If we rest in Christ, we're free to step back and recognize this life for what it is. If we can begin to recognize the brokenness and emptiness of this world, to recognize the brokenness and emptiness even in grasping for power, we can, if we can step back and realize that we can't earn our own righteousness, we can't earn our way into circumstances, that our lives may reflect suffering and pain, but there's hope. We can see the wicked prospering and be confident that vengeance isn't ours to execute, but it's God's. And we can rest in Christ. We can actually find joy in, in the simple things of life that God has given us, to eat and to drink, to, to, to enjoy the life that we have. And Jesus frees us to put a bad leader in perspective and, and, and wicked people in power in perspective and turn to one who can actually, to whom they will answer. And so we can enjoy these simple things every day, looking ahead to eternity. And so this is the hope we have. We don't have to grasp for power now, but we can invest ourselves now. 
Um, that sociologist I mentioned, James Hunter, he, in his book, he talks about a, a, a reality of faithful presence that Christians are called to. That wherever God has put you, we're called to be faithfully present there, to do what we can, to invest into the people around us, to treat people well, to, but ultimately to point them to Christ as the ultimate king and our only hope. And so, yeah, we live in confusing and heated and divided times, but don't despair. Don't fall into despair. Jesus reigns, and he entrusted this time to us. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul said that, that God knows and has marked out the times and the boundaries of our dwelling places. He has put you where he has, when he has, for a reason. It's not an accident that you're here. It's not an accident that you came here today and, and have, have come into this church. So those of you who are members of Village and, and have committed yourselves to this covenant family, it's not an accident that God has put you in this place and is a part of this family. It's not, it's not an accident that you're in Belfast. It's not an accident that we're in D.C., and there's sometimes that I need that reminder too. But God has put you in this place at this time for a reason, for his glory, He's put you in this place at this time so that you might come to the point over and over again where Paul talks about in Acts 17 that we're all like, like blind men in a dark room reaching around for something, to grasp at something, and God is not far from every one of us. So there may, you may have come in here today not even sure why you're here. God has brought you to this place today so that you could hear that you, the only hope we have is in Christ. That it's in his power, it's in his glory, and that, that, that we have the promise that we will, if we turn to him, we will be given a share of his inheritance and be present in his glory forever. As, as we read today or heard today from Revelation 21, that there won't even need to be a sun anymore. There won't be shadows or darkness or brokenness because he's going to make all things new for his glory. And in him, we have that promised inheritance. Maybe God brought you here today so that you could hear that and turn to Christ for hope. Nothing's accidental. And so don't fall into despair. Rest in God's sovereignty. Let's press on. Let's keep telling the story of a better kingdom and be messengers of hope and healing. Let's invest our, our lives and our voices publicly and privately, not in causing deeper divides, but in actually bringing greater unity and healing into people's lives. A pastor named John Piper said, the greatness of Christian exiles is not success, but service. Whether we win or lose, we witness to the way of truth and beauty and joy. This is the calling of every Christian. Not success, but service. Whether we win or lose, we witness to the way of truth and beauty and joy. We don't own culture, and we don't rule it. We serve it with broken-hearted joy and long-suffering mercy for the good of man and the glory of Jesus Christ. So, Village, you are postured in an important place. And God has placed you in this place with a critical voice. You have the opportunity, and, and so here, the words of Ecclesiastes today and, and the, the words that are scattered throughout Scripture and throughout the New Testament as well. You, you're called to honor everyone, to be a voice in Belfast for, for human dignity as, those created, as everyone's created in the image and likeness of God. You're called by God in this place to be ambassadors of a kingdom, not of this world, but to breathe the values of eternity into this city now. To invest your lives into cultivating and forming and filling and cultivating God's world in this place. To, some of you have been called to have deep roots in this place so that you can actually be a part of seeing transforming work as you, bring, as, as you make it in Belfast as it is in heaven. 
But don't ever get caught up in political saviors, thinking that, or thinking that if these issues would just get ironed out, that all, everything would be right in Belfast. We see in Ecclesiastes, whenever man is given power over man, it's going to be to someone's hurt. And there's one king who brings ultimate justice. Let's tell the story of his kingdom. Father, would you help us? We need that. We need your presence. We need your spirit to guide us. We, you know, today we've been able to see the call that we have in your word, throughout your word, as we step into difficult and divided issues. And the way that that works itself out for every one of us as individuals, we pray that your spirit would give us wisdom and guidance on it. We pray for, for village. We pray for Redemption Hill. For other churches that, that preach your gospel and cling to the centrality of the gospel and, and cling to the, the majesty and the glory of Christ as our King. We pray that, that you would use your church to bring healing and hope Father, forgive us for times when we have furthered collective hatred and division. Forgive us for times when our voices have been, have been raised in ways that don't dignify others and don't glorify you. Give us the ability to speak boldly and to, to speak bo- your truth boldly, but to do so with gentleness and respect as Peter calls us to, to always have an answer for the hope that we have, but, but to do so with gentleness and respect so that people may actually have ears to hear. And we do pray that, that you would bring justice and righteousness, that you would bring us leaders who would, who would execute your justice and righteousness well and bear the sword well. We pray that it would be in Belfast as it is in heaven. And we ask, Lord, that you would stir our hearts with affection for Christ and the ability to rest in your goodness and in his sovereignty over the, over the kings of the earth. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.